You may be seated. I would encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. As you know, we, we just went through the birth narrative of Christ. And now we are about to read about his circumcision, his naming, and uh, incidentally, although it's not, uh, it's not covered in Luke as it is in Matthew, uh, we'll discuss the visit of the wise men, many of those other uh, things that come about. Uh, and hopefully we'll dispel some misunderstandings uh, that surround the birth of Christ, the visit of the Magi, and so on. But uh, one of the things that I want you to be thinking about as we go through this is the virtue of waiting, the virtue of patience. We have become an impatient people. We want everything immediately. I'll discuss that in a little while. But um, one of the things that we remember is that everything worth having is worth waiting for. And as a general rule, uh, it is the case that God does not give us everything that we have need of immediately. We must wait for it. We must pray for it. And we must uh, look forward to it. Uh, we, as a people, as Christians, as Bible believers, are a people who are waiting, are we not? We're waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He ascended into heaven, but when he did so, we remember that he did so with the promise that he would return. The angel assured his disciples who were gazing up into the heavens that Christ would return just as he ascended. And we know that the day of his reappearing it draws nearer and nearer every day. So we look forward to that. Uh, and we see, of course, that his people are called upon to wait patiently for that and to do so with great expectation. Let us then, uh, let's turn our hearts and our thoughts towards the Lord and let's prepare to hear his word. Please join in. God, our Father, as we come once again to the gospel, I pray, Lord, that you would give us uh, a sense of new wonder that we would hear with new ears. Luke, your historian, O oh Lord, prepared these words for us under your inspiration, Lord. And they should be something that we delight in. When we come to your word, it should be something that gives us, uh, O oh Lord, a, a sense of, of uh, as Dickens put it in the title of his great work, great expectation, Lord, a, uh, a sense that things are stored up for us, that will be delivered to us, uh, if we will but wait. Lord, help us then to be a patient people, uh, but also, Lord, help us to be an expectant people, a people who know that they are about to receive a great blessing and who are eager to see it come to pass. Now, Lord, help us to be attentive. Take our thoughts off of all those, those silly things, those light things that have occupied our time and our attention throughout the week, and instead help us to turn our thoughts to eternity, turn our thoughts to Christ, our Deliverer, and help me, O oh Lord, to preach. I'm a weak man. I, O oh Lord, feel fatigue within myself, but I know, O oh Lord, you are someone who can use even the poorest of vessels, the humblest of clay, uh, in order to do your work and to be used for your honor. And I pray, Lord, that you would now use me to enlighten your people. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Luke chapter 2, I'll be reading verses 20 through 40. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, 
When the days of our purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to, uh, to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at these things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now, there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Amen indeed. So as we look uh, at these wonderful events, uh, I, I'd like our attention to, uh, to dwell on three main subjects. The first is this. I want us to understand the context of these things as they took place uh, in the life of the infant Jesus. Then secondly, I'd like you to notice the responses of Simeon and Anna at the presentation of Christ in the temple. And then thirdly, I'd like us to think about the application of these things to ourselves, particularly the application of the example of Simeon and Anna to us, how important it is. So last week we uh, talked about how necessary it was for Christ to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. And he had to do that because we could not do them. Sin had make it, made us weak in the flesh. There was no man on earth since the fall of Adam, who could keep the law of God. If we were to be saved, someone had to be sent into the world who would not only pay our sin debt, pay for the sins that we had committed, but who would also keep the law perfectly in our place, that his righteousness might be imputed to us. That was what Jesus came to do. We read in Galatians 4.4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now, it is uh, somewhat ironic, I think, that Christ, who was the author of the law, submitted himself to it in our place that he might redeem us. The very one who had created the law of God 
and, and given it to us. He was the one who kept it for us. I want you also to notice how, what, what good parents uh, the Lord gave him. Obviously, Joseph was his foster father, Mary his mother, but how obedient they were to fulfill the ceremonial law. If you would, uh, if you want to, turn uh, to Leviticus chapter 12. Leviticus is, of course, incidentally, if you are uh, beginning this year by, by resolving to read your way through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, you will find that Leviticus is the great speed bump of the Bible. It is uh, the, the time when most people go, oh my word, uh, as they are presented with law after law, statute after statute, begotten after begotten. Um, and then, of course, we have to go through it again when we reach First Chronicles. But um, the, uh, Leviticus is a book that is of, of monumental importance. It's not as uh, frequently quoted as, say, the Psalms or Deuteronomy in the New Testament, but it is one that establishes for us certain precepts, uh, and it makes sense of the New Testament. So, for instance, we look at Leviticus 12, we understand what it was that Joseph and Mary were doing when they went to Jerusalem with Christ. So, Leviticus 12 and chapter, uh, verse 2, not chapter 2. Leviticus 12 and verse 2. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as in the day of her customary impurity, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. She shall then continue in the blood of her purification 33 days. She shall not touch any hallowed thing nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled. But if she bears a female child, then she'll be, she shall be unclean two weeks as in her customary impurity. And she shall continue in the blood of her purification 66 days. When the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove as a sinner offering to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who is born a male or a female. And if she is not able to bring a lamb, then she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one as a burnt offering and the other as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. Jesus was circumcised uh, according to the law of Moses. The circumcision, of course, was a symbolic cutting away of an unclean portion of the body, uh, the removal of the foreskin. And it was intended to foreshadow, to point to the removal of sin from the heart that only the Holy Spirit can do. Now, Jesus himself had no sin to atone for. He was sinless and perfect. And yet he underwent this, that he might fulfill all of the law for us. The fullness of the law was realized in Christ. It was interesting that, uh, or at least it's interesting to me, that since Adam uh, and the giving of the law on Sinai and so on uh, under Moses, or I should say the re-giving of the law, it was really a reiteration when the Ten Commandments were given. No man had ever kept the law perfectly. The law had been given to Israel. Men had attempted to keep it, but of course they had failed in word and in deed and in thought. In so many different ways they had broken the law. And yet here is Jesus. He is born into the, law, into the world under the law to keep it for us. And he keeps it 
perfectly that we might come before the Lord and be seen with his righteousness and not the filthy rags of our own attempts at doing so. Uh, and this is, a, this is something that is restated throughout the gospel again and again. When Jesus is doing these things that ordinarily only sinners would do, he once again says, you know, I have to do this in order that I might do it in the place of my people in essence. So for instance, he comes to Matthew uh, he doesn't come to Matthew. He comes to John to be baptized, John the Baptist, in Matthew 3.15. And as he comes to John the Baptist, John is horrified. This is a baptism for repentance, a turning away from sin. Uh, and he is amazed. He, he says to him, you know, I don't need to baptize you. You need to baptize me. I'm the sinner here. You're the sinless one. And yet Jesus says this in Matthew 3.15. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permitted to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. So Jesus does these things in order that righteousness might be fulfilled in you and I. Now, you remember from the text that we just read, he is called Jesus, that is Yesu in uh, Greek. Uh, in Hebrew, the name is Yeshua or Joshua. It means literally Yeshua, or rather Yahweh, the Savior. Uh, this was the name that was given by the angel to Joseph. Uh, he was told you must name him John was named also by God, and Jesus is named by God. Uh, and it speaks, obviously, to his divine mission. He is God, our righteousness. He is God, the Savior, the one who has come to save his people from his sins. Uh, now, a woman, as you have read here and in Leviticus uh, chapter 12, a woman was considered ceremonially impure for 33 days after uh, giving birth to a male child. And after that time, she was to go and she was to make a sin offering in the temple. She was to uh, make an offering of these animals that would cleanse away her sin. Uh, they were to offer up a lamb, but if they could not afford it, they were to offer two pigeons or turtle doves. And you'll notice here that Jesus' parents offer up two turtle doves because they cannot afford a lamb. It's a reminder to us that Jesus, who had seen the praises of the angels from eternity past, who had enjoyed riches beyond our wildest dreams, he was born in this world into great poverty. His foster father, Joseph, was a carpenter, but we need to remember that his family had traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and they were probably living at this point upon whatever Joseph had saved. It's very unlikely that they reached Bethlehem, and, and Joseph was just immediately able to continue uh, his trade as a carpenter in that particular area. It's also very instructive to us. Uh, we remember the story of the wise men, the magi, who came to visit Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. In Christmas stories and in the nativity sets, uh, you will all see them at the birth of Christ. You will see them at the stable. Uh, occasionally, we'll have this little drummer boy who comes out of nowhere uh, to wake up Mary while she's attempting to, uh, to uh, take care of her child. But in any event... Uh, the fact is, though, that the Magi did not visit Jesus at his birth. They came much later. In fact, they came after the events that we've just read about, the circumcision of Christ. We know this because the child was officially named at their circumcision. And we read in Matthew one twenty-five, which obviously precedes Matthew 2, that Joseph called his name 
Jesus according to God's instruction. That was the point at which it was announced to the world what the name of this young boy would be. And his name would be Jesus, Yahweh saves. But we also know the gold frankincense and myrrh, the gifts that were traditionally given by the three wise men, these are expensive gifts. And we know that if they had received gold, they would have had enough in order to offer a lamb as a sacrifice. They didn't yet have the gold in hand, so they offer two turtle doves in place of that, an inexpensive offering, but all that they could afford at that point in time. The gifts of the wise men, though, were given at exactly the right time, not before the circumcision so the lamb could be offered, but rather before the flight into Egypt. Why did they need expensive gifts? Because not only was it uh, the case that Joseph was not going to be able to labor in his trade for a little while longer, but they were going to have to flee to a foreign country. And they would need money in order to uh, feed the family and uh, for them to stay someplace. Uh, And that, of course, is why Herod slays all of the children in Bethlehem born at about the time of Jesus. He is duped by the wise men. They are told by God not to go back and tell Herod uh, where the child was born. They had come originally to the palace. They'd come to Herod and they said, we are looking for the one who is born king of the Jews. And of course, Herod was very upset by that. Uh, And all Jerusalem, whenever Herod was upset, Jerusalem was upset. Herod's angry. Because when Herod got angry, upset, or unsettled, people had a nasty tendency to die. So, uh, of course, Herod hears that a child is born who is going to be the king of the Jews, and he hasn't had a child born in his household. So he sends out searching for this child, and unfortunately the infants are slain in Bethlehem. But Mary and Joseph, they flee to Egypt. They are saved from the slaughter, or their child is saved from the slaughter, and then they return to Nazareth. Jesus does not grow up in Bethlehem. He grows up in Nazareth. And, uh, but before that time, we, we see him being taken to the temple for those uh, rites that were necessary to be performed when a male child was born. And we see Anna and Simeon. We see these two great saints who had been waiting for exactly this moment. Think of that. Every single day, they had been looking forward to the appearance of this baby. I know that women, after nine months of waiting and getting to the point where they get the waddle, they can't turn over, uh, they are more than happy to see the delivery of their child. They are waiting for that moment. Please come forth that I might no longer have to you know, go through the, uh, the trial of, of bearing you. Um, but uh, this woman and this man had been waiting for literally years for this particular child to appear. And God had given them the great blessing of allowing them to see with their mortal eyes their Savior, to hold him literally in their arms and to render their blessing. It's a beautiful moment in the history of redemption. They are waiting for the consolation of Israel, not just any child, but the one who would be the deliverer of his people, the blessing to the nations, the one who would be Jehovah Sidkenu, God our righteousness, the one who would be Emmanuel, God tabernacling, dwelling with his people. They are a wonderful example to us of the fact that there were regenerate believers in the period of the Old Testament. Again and again, we see the example of these people who are waiting in faith for God's promises 
to come to pass, waiting for the Messiah, the Deliverer that God had promised would come. In Malachi 4.1, the last of the Old Testament books we read, but to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. They were waiting for this son of righteousness and then amazingly they were able to hold him in their, in their arms. We sometimes forget that not all the Jews of Christ's time were like the Pharisees. Not all of them were depending upon works righteousness. Not all of them saw the Romans as their biggest problem. We look at the the Jews of this period, and we have to admit there were large numbers of Pharisees who were depending upon their own righteousness in order to be saved. And there were also large numbers of zealots who believed that their problems were essentially political. Uh, And isn't that the same today? We have tons of people who see the biggest problem in their lives as either Republicans or Democrats. Uh, In fact, our entire system of politics is now, it it spins around that assumption. The biggest problem we have is the people on the other side of the political aisle. That's not the biggest problem we have. Brothers and sisters, the biggest problem we have is not who's going to be president in 2024. It's the sin that dwells within us. It is the fall and its consequences that is the biggest problem that we have. Politics is just a result of the fall. Moving on. Um, So, (laughs) I was waiting to see if anybody would catch that. But um, moving on, uh, we see, therefore, Anna and Simeon as examples of salvation preceding the cross. These are people who believed like Abraham believed. You remember, Abraham believed the promises of God and it was credited to him for righteousness. He was justified by his faith in the coming Redeemer. The people on the Old Testament side of the cross who look forward to the coming of Christ, they were justified through faith in Christ. And we, who are on the other side of the cross, who have been born after the coming of Jesus Christ, we are justified by faith in the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, just as surely. There's never been anyone who was saved by any means other than faith alone in Christ alone, either as the promised and coming Redeemer or as the Redeemer who has come. We must put our faith in him or we will not be saved. Now, Simeon, as we read, was particularly blessed. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would live to see that great Redeemer. So on that particular day, and we have to remember the temple was a busy place. It wasn't just Jesus who was being uh, brought for this ceremonial offering. It wouldn't have just been Mary who was waiting to have her uncleanness purged away by the, by the sin offering. It would have been countless people, but yet Simeon is guided to his, his Redeemer. The Holy Spirit guides him to the temple at the exact moment that Mary and Joseph are presenting Jesus. And he knows, as he holds this young child, this is the one who was spoken of. This is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And his heart was filled with joy at that moment, but also filled with pity. You remember how he says to Mary, your soul will be pierced. There's a poignant uh, image. As with a sword. Mary, you're going to watch your son suffering and dying. He looked at her and he saw that she would suffer as very few women had ever suffered in history. But he is overjoyed 
that his Redeemer has finally come. So he takes Jesus in his arms and he praises God in this beautiful hymn. It's called uh, traditionally the Nunc Dimittis. That's the Latin title. It means, uh, it's roughly translated as, now you are permitting me to depart. Lord, finally, you're allowing your servant to depart. Uh, I love how Norval Gen uh, Gelden, he's, he's a, uh, uh, a reformed preacher in South Africa, he describes this moment. He says this, The thought underlying Simeon's praise is of a slave who is instructed by his master to keep watch through the long dark night on a high place to wait for the rising of a special star and then to announce it. After wearisome hours of waiting, he sees at last the star rising in all its brightness. He announces it and is then discharged from keeping watch any longer. Simeon had been instructed to await the rising of the sun of righteousness, the star of the house of Jacob. At last, now that the child is in his arms, he has beheld the redemption of God incarnate in Christ Jesus. So he knows God now lets him depart in peace and discharges him from the task of further watching. It's a beautiful image, isn't it? The idea of watch and wait. It's the idea, obviously, of, of the soldier who is told, wait until you are relieved. Hold until you are relieved. And the day of his relief has come. And he is allowed to go now back to the place that he has longed for. He has been waiting to enter into the presence of his Lord for many long years. And now seeing the Messiah who makes that possible, he is allowed to depart. Now you are allowing your servant to depart. What a blessing he achieves at this point. Now, Simeon prophesies several things uh, that are all in keeping with the prophecies that were made in the Old Testament. First, he... Holding this, this child, he says, this is the Savior, but not just of the Jews, but for all people. This is the Son who brings light into the world, not just one tiny nation in, in Palestine. Jesus will dissipate the darkness. He will take away sin and misery. He will reverse the effects of the fall. This is the Redeemer of the world. Behold the Lamb of God, John will say later on, who takes away the sins, not just of the Jewish people, but of the world. Why is that important to us today? Well, it's obvious. How many of you are literally descended from Abraham? And the answer is, I think, very few, probably. I may have a little of Abraham's tribe within my bloodline, but I am, I am no full-blood Jew, and I know that very few of you are. We live in a land thousands of miles away from these events, thousands of miles away from Palestine, and yet the things that happened on that particular day affect us directly. Simeon was looking forward to the day that you would be redeemed from your sins. Then the second thing, he says this good news of what is happening will be published throughout all the world to all of the Gentile nations. That too seemed impossible. I mean, think about this. This is a poor kid born in a grindingly poor family in a backwater of the Roman Empire. Normally, these children are born, they live, they die, and they are forgotten. Nobody knows them. And yet, almost everyone on this planet knows the name of Christ. Think about that. This is a prophecy that has been fulfilled abundantly. The world would know the name of Jesus the Redeemer, and he prophesied it. Then we read, of course, that Joseph and Mary are absolutely amazed at the words of Simeon. They're like, yeah, 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 he's the Redeemer, we know. You know, mm. 
it's, it's actually, it's something that the reinforcement of these things, even though angels have spoken to them, again and again, they are amazed at what is happening. These are not everyday events. These are things that they, they took to heart. They pondered them. They were mysteries to them. How are these things going to come to pass? They've been told they would happen, but they don't know the way that they're going to happen. They are told these things, and they are mystified, and they are amazed at the word of God. Are you mystified and amazed at the word of God? Or do you count it as something, you know, kind of eh, commonplace? I hope I hope it's not a commonplace to you. I hope it's something that every time you hear the, the gospel, you kind of scratch your head and say, God did that for me? For me? <laughs> of all people, that the Lord would send his son into the world, born of a woman, born under the law, to save me. I'm the wretch the song was written about. And yet he was born in order to save me from my sins. They wondered at it. His very parents wondered at it. How much more should we wonder at what God has done? But the, the apostles, you remember, they walked with Jesus for three years, and yet time and again, as Jesus did things, said things, they are amazed. And why? They are slow of heart to believe. It's difficult to absorb these things. Please, Rid yourself of any idea that the ancients were gullible, okay? That they, well, you know, you come in and say you're the son of God, and everybody's like, yeah, he's the son of God. Okay, he said so. We, we're willing to believe him. No, they, there's, uh, there's constantly going to be, throughout the Gospels, a prove it. You say you're the son of God, I want to see some evidence. And, of course, Jesus renders the evidence again and again and again. Ours is a reasonable faith, brothers and sisters. We are not asked to believe in things that were not testified to and proven again and again. Mary and Joseph, his own parents, were amazed at what they were being told. And as the events of, the, of Christ's life unfolded, they saw the evidence of the things that they had been told before. Thirdly, Simeon tells them in verse 34 that Jesus is destined to be the cause, the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Now, who are those who fall? These are people who assume that they are standing. These are the people who assume that they are right with God, who rely upon their own merit and power. We remember that Psalm 20, verse 6 says, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He answers him from his holy heaven with the saving power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Peter would speak of those who would deny the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 2.7, he says, Now to you who believe, the stone is precious. The stone he's talking about is Jesus Christ. But to those who do not believe, this stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. We remember that when the gospel is preached, this is very important, whenever the gospel is being preached, it's not something that's just happening. It's being set before you. It's rather like uh, a, a, um, an advocate for a king, a, uh, a messenger has been sent to your city. Your city is under siege by this king, and you are being sent an offer of mercy. If you will relent, if you will surrender, if you will uh, trust this king and call him your Lord, you will be saved from the wrath that is to come. But if you do not, 
It may take a while, but be sure your city and you will be destroyed with it. Understand, whenever the gospel is being preached, the preacher is an ambassador of Christ. He comes and he offers you peace on the most gracious terms. You have been a rebel. You've been an enemy. You've disobeyed all of the commandments of the king, <clears throat> the very king who not only created you, but sustains you every single day. But now he comes offering you peace. And not just peace in this life, but eternal peace and eternal life and blessings. He offers you the ability to become a co-heir with his only begotten son. What? do you do with that message? Whenever the gospel is being preached, that is what is before you. That offer of peace with God. But if you do not accept it and you remain hostile towards him, he warns you, wrath is to come. You choose then either salvation or punishment. Once again, you have heard the gospel message. And to those of you who have not closed with Christ, I warn you, once again, you are being told there is only one way of salvation. It is by believing in the same Savior that Simeon and Anna held in their arms, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why will you perish? So many foolishly say, no, I, I, I don't want anything to do with Christ and his demands and so on. I'm going to live on my own terms. I'm going to be autonomous. But what you're actually saying is, I choose death and hell because I'm stubborn because I will not relent, because I will not have anyone to rule over me. You're making the same choice the devil did. Foolishness and pride. Oh, how many it is destroyed. Geldenhees, again, says this. He says, no one, it's in your folders. Take this to heart. No one will be able to take up a neutral attitude towards him, that is Jesus. He will serve as a clear sign by which God makes known to man that everyone in himself is doomed and guilty and that there is salvation for the penitent only in Christ. But many will refuse to accept that sign and to seek salvation through him. They will contradict the sign and resist him. They will bring about his, their everlasting fall. That, of course, was what the Pharisees did. They contradicted the signs. They refused to accept him. And why pride? Pride has been the great stumbling block in every age. Simeon also says that through Christ, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. One of the things that you're going to see as we go through the Gospels is that Jesus knows the inclinations, the secret inclinations of every heart. And when Christ appears in the world, it creates a clear divide between men, between those who really serve him and those who reject him. How you feel about Jesus shows the inclination of your heart it shows your attitude about yourself, and it shows your attitude towards God. There are so many people who think that they are good people, but who reject Christ, who reject the Messiah, who reject God. They are actually revealed to be those rebels and enemies that the Word speaks of, and on the other side. How you react to Jesus is actually the most, I mean, most people treat it as inconsequential, but it is actually the most important thing about you. How you are reacting to the gospel right now tells you where you're going to spend eternity. If the words that I've been speaking are a stumbling block to you, <clears throat> if there's something that, that offends you, if there's something that you reject and push away and say, I, I hate that message, 
no, no, I, I, I believe I'm good enough to go to heaven by my own power, then I hate to tell you this, you're going to hell. No, I don't hate to tell you this. I, I need to tell you this. You're going to hell. But if you say, yes, this is the message of salvation. This is the message I depend upon. This is what I've been looking forward to. Like Simeon and Anna, I want to see my Savior face to face. I may not hold him in my arms as an infant like they did, but I look forward to that day when I stand in an assembly that no one can, can number. I mean, think about that. This will be better than any Christian conference that has ever been offered. We will be standing with a multitude of saints, the Spurgeons, the Wesleys, the Augustines, the Pauls, the Andes, the whoever's. And we'll see Christ in the flesh. We'll see him with our own two eyes. And we'll have that opportunity to praise him with that great assembly. If that's what your soul longs for, then you know that whatever else is wrong with you, that the most important thing about you is right. Know that, brothers and sisters. And of course, finally, Simeon also tells Mary that uh, this resistance that her beloved son will endure will be so great that it will pierce her soul. And she sees the way that the, that the Pharisees conspire against him. It must have wounded her deeply. And then, of course, what greater wound could there be than seeing your son being executed by the most vicious means that the Romans could ever come up with? And not just being executed in the physical sense, but also having the wrath of the Father poured out upon him. She had to watch helpless. She was there while her son was being nailed to a cross. Uh, that truly would have pierced her soul. Finally, after Simeon, we have Anna. We have the example of male piety in Israel, but then God wants us to understand Christianity isn't just for guys, all right? It's reversed in our age. It's almost like Christianity is just for women, but that's never been the case. It's for, for both of us. It's for men and women. And so we see Anna, this example of perseverance. Anna, the name incidentally means grace. Uh, and we see here this, this unflagging example of female piety. Now, one of the things that, I, I'm just going to mention this in passing, there's, there's an age issue. How old was Anna? Um, <clears throat> it says that she, uh, she was married for seven years, and then she'd gone 84 years after that. Um, if we compute how old she could have been when she was married, which was probably, you know, early would be 14, it puts her over 100. Okay, when she is holding Christ. That's unlikely. Um, it is probably more likely that, uh, that Luke was probably trying to say she had now reached the age of 84. She'd only been married for seven years and had spent the rest of her life up until that moment uh, in um, the, uh, the office of prophetess, not married again and awaiting uh, the Lord. But perhaps she was over 100. I don't know. I'll find out one day, though. I know that for certain. So um, she was instructed by the Holy Spirit to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. She too had been waiting for her Savior, and there she is, she's in the court of the women, and she sees Simeon taking up the child and saying his own prayer, and she hurries over, and she gives her blessing as well, and she is the one who is blessed. This is a wonderful example of two old saints who had waited on the Lord, and they're waiting was repaid. Now, I want to make an application of this. Obviously, it is hard to wait. 
And we live in a society, we live in an age where we don't want to wait for everything, anything. Everything at this point, everything is drive up, everything is prime delivery, everything is 30 days to a new you, or you can just skip to liposuction and forget the, the 30 days, you know. But we want it all now. We want it immediately. I want it now! I want everything now. I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait for my deliverer. I don't want to wait on the Lord. I don't want to be patient for it. I, I mean, I, I say this, I understand it in my heart. I hate the process of waiting. I, I can't understand for the life of me why we go through this whole process of going to the doctor's office. First thing they do, what do they put you in? They, put you, they tell you, you have to arrive at 9. Okay, I'm there at 9. What do they do? They put me in the waiting room. Then they take me from the waiting room to another room and make me wait again. I came at nine. What, what's, what's him? It's his problem. You know, I, I, he should have been in the, I, I mean, we could have been right there at nine, gotten this done. I, I mean, when I was a child, I, I was the, uh, are we there yet, kid? I actually asked that on airplanes. Have you ever thought about how foolish that is? Are we there yet? Yes, we're, we're there. We just only appear to be flying. <laughs> okay. I, I mean, insanity. But it, it shows that as a result of the fall, there's a built-in impatience to most people. And yet here we have the example of two aged saints who had received the promises of the Lord, who had been told, wait. And they were waiting. They had waited their entire lives for this moment. What an incredible blessing that day at the temple was. We can understand why Simeon at that point, after a hard, long life, would say, Lord, now you're allowing your servant to depart. I have seen the rising of that star you told me to watch for, the son of righteousness. You kept your promise, O Lord. How often they could have wavered in their confidence and, and given up, but they trusted God. They trusted that he always keeps his promises. Now you and I, brothers and sisters, are also waiting whether or not we realize it. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting for him to come back. Every day my expectation grows. Every day my desire to see him come back grows. I look at the world and I say, you know, it's funny, Martin Luther said, uh, Jesus has to come back soon because the world can't get any more deranged and evil than it already is. That was in 1500, or the 1500s. Uh, <laughs> you want to say, Luther, you ain't seen nothing yet. Um, <clears throat> but every day, as the world becomes, in, in some senses, more deluded and darker, I, I long for the reappearing of Christ. But it's not just the, the sins of the world. I, I'm tired of me. I'm tired of my sins. I, I'm tired of, of not being amongst just men made perfect. I look forward to that day of Christ reappearing because I want done with my sins. I hope that's you as well. I hope that you are waiting expectantly for that particular day. And as a result, if you're looking forward to that day, it helps us to bear with the difficulties of life in a fallen world. It helps us to bear with the, the, the sins of others against us. Well, that's okay. I'm waiting for Christ to come back. It doesn't really matter that you sold my lawnmower. Uh, you know, by, by reflection, everything pales in comparison to the return of Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, okay, you take away my house, my livelihood, everything that I have. I still have Christ coming back. I don't care. How does one do that, though? 
Well, we do it the same way that, that they did, by faith. We do it by faith. We walk by faith every single day. We set aside the, the thoughts of, of this earthly plane and we look forward to the day of the reappearing of Jesus. And we do so expectantly. Now, it may not happen in our lifetime. We may pass on. And we may be with the saints who come in his train at his reappearing sometime later on. But I, I'd like to hope that the day is, is drawing near when we will see him face to face. In the twinkling of an eye, we'll be changed. We'll have those glorified bodies that we're looking forward to. That day is coming. I don't know when. And if anybody tells you they know when, you just say to them, you're a false prophet and move on. Because no man knows. But the day is coming, brothers and sisters. You can be sure of that. Why? Because God promised it would. I want to close reading. Uh, Romans 8 is the great triumphant, more than conqueror section. It's written to people who are going to be and have been persecuted for their faith. But Paul writes these words about the, the way that we groan expectantly, the way the entire creation is groaning. In Romans 8, 18, he writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope? For what he sees. We are looking forward in hope for the reappearing of Christ. That day when he will come for all who were his. I hope that's you. I hope that you're numbered amongst the wise virgins who have lamp oil, who are waiting expectantly. That day is coming. And I want you to be ready for it. That's why I preach the gospel. I know Christ is coming back. And I want you all to be ready for that particular day. If you love him, if you trust him, if you have surrendered to him, you are ready. You may be weak in your faith, but you still have a great Savior. But it doesn't matter who, who you are, how great and mighty you are, how many people call you sir or ma'am. You are doomed if you have not yet closed with him. I urge you, have done with your own righteousness. Lay it aside and flee to the one who is the Savior of souls. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, we thank you so much that you kept Simeon and Anna for so long. You were the one who made them persevere in the, in the faith. You were the one who makes us persevere as well. And we look forward to that day of the certain reappearing of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that day comes soon. Lord, I pray that you would help us, therefore, to turn away from sin, to turn away from the allurements of the world, those, those things that the world, the flesh, and the devil use to try to tempt us away from Christ. Help us to recognize that there is nothing in this world as important as closing with him. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.